Good to have Gil Pitts just walked in. How you feeling? Very good, thanks to the Lord. Gil's been in the hospital. And, uh, Thank you. What do you call yourself? What do you play there, Gil? What is that, bass? Uh-huh. Yes. Gil's the bass player with uh, Judy. We're doing Eddie's Oh, are you doing Eddie's reception? That's great. So we are in Colossians chapter 4, and today we're going to cover five verses. That would be verses 2 through 6. Okay. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. So we're coming down to the end of this book, as you can see. And then we will go into the book of Titus. Okay. And when we finish that, we'll go into the Psalms for the summer. We'll do about 15 Psalms in the summer, and then we'll see where we'll end up in the fall, assuming that we're all here and still breathing. So, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And this is the epilogue of the letter. Because when you start in verse 7, you have the greetings, where he starts greeting different people in the church. And the Greeks, when they talked about an epilogue in Greek literature, and remember the Bible was written originally in Greek, the New Testament, uh, they referred to the section of a letter or a book that summed up the main points. It's sort of a recapitulation of what's already been said. And we're going to discover that that's what Paul does. He repeats or re-emphasizes or focuses on points that he made previously in his letter. Now I'm going to give you an example of this. Okay, So if you look at verse 2, for example, it says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant with thanksgiving. That is chapter 4 and verse 2. Okay. Now, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 7, you'll see that he's mentioned that already once before. So look at 2, 7. He says, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding with, look, thanksgiving. So we see that that is repeated. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 15, he says this, let the peace of God rule in your heart, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. So you see that he is he is instructed the believers in Colossae to be thankful. So when you look at 4.2, he says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant with thanksgiving. So he is re-emphasizing that point. Now in chapter 4 and verse 3, he says this, Meanwhile, praying for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. To speak the mystery of Christ. Now if you look over at chapter 1. At verse 26. He talks about the mystery. You see that? 126. The mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations. But now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known. What are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, he has talked about the mystery before. The mystery is that Christ is now in Gentiles, not just Jewish people. If you look at chapter 2, and verse 2, look what he says. 
chapter 2 and verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all riches of the fullness, full assurance and understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God. You see, there's that mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so there is this concept of the mystery that he's taught and instructed them in before, which he repeats now in 4.3. Let me just give you one other example. I'll show you others, but I'll just give you one other. Look at chapter 4 and verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Walk in wisdom. Now when you go back to chapter 1, And look at verses 9 and 10. Here's what he says in 1, 9 and 10. For this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom, there's the wisdom, and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. You see that in pleasing him. That's exactly what he has said in chapter 4. You also see that same concept over in chapter 3 in verse 16 where he says, basically, this is 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And then he tells them how to act in verse 17, in word and deed, you to do all for the glory of God. So in 4.5 he says, walk in wisdom. So this is the epilogue. The epilogue is where he sums up things that he has previously said in his letter. And the goal is to give them this, imp this impetus to continue moving on in the faith and not falling under the deceptive words of the Judaizers or human philosophy. So this is his last chance to do that. Does that make sense? That's what an epilogue is according to Greek literature and the Bible, this section here, is that kind of literature. Now let me give you the outline of our text today. Okay, here's how I'm going to outline it. Okay. Verses 2 through 4, we're going to see he speaks of our private life. Verses 2 through 4, our private life. In verses 5 and 6, he speaks of our public life. Okay. In 2 through 4, he talks about prayer. Prayer is talking to God. And in 2 through 4, our private life should be characterized by talking to God about men or about people. Okay? In verses 5 and 6, our public life, he talks about witnessing. Talking to people about God. So our pub private life, prayer, talking to God about people. Our public life, talking to people about God, witnessing. Okay, so that's our outline. So let's look at our text. I think that sort of sets up this section for us. First of all, I want you to notice that our lives are to be characterized by prayer. Okay? First, petition. Okay? Our lives have been characterized by prayer. First, petition. And here's what he says in verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer. Now this is a command, and it's it's a continuous command. He said we should be habitually involved in prayer, and the word for prayer here means petition. We should persevere in prayer. Now, anytime we have a command, that Paul gives us a command, 
he gives us a command for a reason. So if he tells them to persevere, continue in prayer, do it constantly, he's telling them that either because they're what? Not doing it. And he's saying you need to do it. Or he's telling them because they are doing it. And guess what? He's telling them to keep on doing it. Now we don't know what the situation is. But you need to know when you have a command like this, you always have to ask why the command. And you have to think of the options. Either way, whether they've given up on prayer, which by the way is very easy to do, or they have been praying, either way, regular prayer is a necessity. It indicates that we're dependent upon God and we're not dependent upon ourselves. You know, we've just prayed for people. And what we're saying is, God, we can't do anything about it. What can I do? I'm a Bible teacher. I can't do anything about somebody's sickness, can you? You're not a medical doctor, you can't. So guess what? We're asking God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. It speaks of our dependence upon God. Now, I'm convinced that most believers are very poor prayers. We're not very good at praying. If I were in a classroom, if I were at Criswell College with my students, I would say, why are Christians not good prayers? And they would give me a bunch of answers. And they would say, for example, well, prayer is not a priority in our life. And that would be true. And because it's not a priority, guess what happens? It gets shoved back toward the last events of the day. And you may pray a little bit before you go to bed. Or they would say, we're too busy. Our schedule sort of chokes out prayer. And so sometimes we have good intentions, but we don't pray. Uh, another student might say, it's hard work. And let me tell you, it is hard work. It's very tiresome to pray. It's like you're fighting a spiritual battle. And I'm convinced that another reason that people don't pray, we're very poor prayers, is because so many of our prayers don't get answered, and we just think it's not worth it. And let me tell you something. When we started praying in this class for sick people, those first few months, all we got was more sick people. And I was very close to just saying, and I may have said it out loud to you, and I've said it to my wife, and I've thought it to myself a thousand times, it's just not worth it. But Jesus said, when you don't see results, he said, keep on praying. He said, men ought always pray and not faint, not give up. So guess what? We persevere, and we see there's results. What would have happened if we had given up? And you know, not too long ago, I wrote this book on heaven and on earth, and I have this whole section on healing, a whole chapter just on healing and miracles. I have people say, well, you're charismatic. I'm not charismatic. I just believe the Bible says God heals people. Yes. And he heals people Amen. through prayer. Yes. And I talk about that. And what do you do if you have a prayer ministry in your church and you're not getting any answers? You know what, my, what I said in the book? Keep praying. You're not the one that's healing them, are you? Oh, you are. You're the only one that's asking them. How many times did your kids ask you for something until finally you did what? 
Remember the woman who kept begging this man next door, give me something, give me something. Another one goes after the judge. They finally said, just to get rid of the woman. And then Jesus' answer is, men ought always pray and not faint. That was his lesson. So, we need to pray. So he says, continually pray. Now, how do you do that? Look what it says there in verse 2. Being vigilant. Some of your translations may say alert. The Greek word is Gregorio, from which we get our name Gregory. So if your name is Gregory, you should be alert. You shouldn't be sleeping through this lesson. I don't think we have any Gregs in this class, do we? I don't think so. I'm glad we... It <laughs> would be terrible if somebody was Gregory and sleeping through a lesson. But uh, it means to be alert, be awake, be watchful. You That means that you have to make an effort to stay awake and be alert when you pray. It's like a guy who's on guard duty. And, you know, one of the things about guards, whether it's a security guard who works from 11 at night to 7 in the morning, the propensity is to what? <coughs> to sleep. But what are they paid for? To be alert, to be awake. And he, that's what this says. Jesus says, when you're praying, or Paul says, continually pray, and stay alert when you pray. That takes an effort. In the Garden of Gethsemane, while Jesus prayed, what did the disciples do? They slept. He said, can't you even pray with me for an hour? And he goes back to pray, and what do they do again? They sleep again. And then he comes back a third time, and they're sleeping, and you know what he, he says? Sleep on. You know, you're a lost case. I think that's what he would say about us. So, we have this propensity to sleep, want to sleep when we pray. How many of you had an intention when you went to bed to pray and you fell asleep? Did that ever happen to anybody? I have a solution. Don't pray in bed. That's the greatest solution. You know, some of you are not night people. Some of you are morning people and different things. You should pray when you're awake, not when you're trying to go to sleep. It's a, it, prayer for some people is a great sleeping age, but it's not what the Lord wants. And oftentimes when we pray, no, he says, be alert, be vigilant. Oftentimes when we pray, we're distracted. And what distracts us? Yeah, everything. Sights, just think of your senses. Sights, smells, noises, touch, suddenly you start praying, you start itching. <laughs> you know, all these ideas, vacation plans, you know, when you're going to go on your diet, what you're going to fix for, you know, the meal the next day, uh, everything comes into your mind. And so you're distracted. Jesus, Paul says when you pray, pray continually, but be alert. I have a, a formula in the Heaven on Earth book in the chapter called AM and FM Christians, where I show you how to stay alert when you pray and not be distracted. And it's important. So I think that this prayer issue is really an important issue. So we need to not be distracted, and yet need to do whatever it takes not to be distracted. So Susanna Wesley, the mother of John Wesley, you know, she had 21 children, easy to get distracted. But she prayed every day for an hour. 
And what she would do is she'd take her apron and put it over her head. And that's how she prayed. So she couldn't see what was going on and she'd get off by herself. When I lived back in, back in Maryland, we lived out in the country. And all we had was country roads. Some were just gravel roads. And I would get out there and I would just walk the country roads. Sometimes you wouldn't see a car for 30 minutes on this road. I, and I'd take a prayer list. And I would walk the road and I'd look at the prayer list and I would just start praying out loud for that particular need. And I'd do that for 30, 40 minutes and I'd come back home. And sometimes you just need to have a prayer list so that if your mind wanders, you can come right back to it. It's right there on the page. And keep a prayer journal when God answers the prayers. Or when you get assurance that the prayer is answered. So these are just some of the things that Paul says we need to do. We need to pray continually. We need to be vigilant or alert. And then he adds this. It should also include something else. Look. It should be accompanied by gratitude. Look at the end of verse 2. With thanksgiving. That is an attitude of the heart. When you're thankful for something, and you're telling God how thankful you are, you're praying, and guess what? You have a joyful heart, and prayer suddenly becomes a pleasure. It doesn't become a chore. So, we thank God for healing Leroy. Was that a chore to do that? No, that was a pleasure to do that. You see that? Once your prayer is mixed with thanksgiving, it moves away from being a chore to being a pleasure. So Paul says, be thankful. Always have this attitude of gratitude and be thanking the Lord. And that sets the stage. So we are to pray and we are to make petitions on behalf of, of our needs. And then in verse 3, he talks about intercession. What he says there. Meanwhile, praying for us also, don't only pray for yourselves, pray for us also. That's intercession. The us here would be Paul and Timothy and his evangelistic team. What should be the subject of their prayer for Paul and the evangelistic team? Subject number one, that. That God would open to us a door for the word. To speak the mystery of Christ, which means the gospel to the Gentiles. For which I am also in chains. Now remember Paul is in under house arrest in Rome when he writes this. This is a prison epistle. 61 to 62. He has freedom to share the gospel while he's under house arrest for two or three years. And now, so he can't be talking about that. He has freedom to share the gospel. But he says he's anticipating getting released. And he says, when I get released, pray that I'll get released, and God will open up new opportunities for me to share the gospel with Gentiles. So that's the first thing that they're to pray for. Now look at the second subject that they're to pray for. Verse 4, that. Notice verse 3, that. Verse 4, that. That I, I may make it, meaning the gospel to the Gentiles, manifest as I ought to speak. Make Pray that when I do get the opportunity, I'll make this gospel to the Gentiles so crystal clear that even a child can understand. And let me tell you something. Oftentimes when we have an opportunity and God gives us... you ever have that situation where you just said, God wants you to speak to somebody? And so you do speak to somebody. But when you do, you stumble over your words. 
you had the opportunity, but you basically blow the opportunity. You know, because you stumble over your words or you're vague and you talk in terms that they don't understand. You don't define your words. Paul asks for clarity of mind and clarity of speech. He says, pray for that. And that's what I would ask that you pray for me for. Because I think that that's what I want. I want to be able to speak so you understand clearly what I'm saying when I share with other people. So what he's asking them to do is join in his missionary activities through prayer. You know, all of us can't go out on a mission field. In fact, all of us shouldn't go out on a mission field. But all of us can be involved in missions and evangelism by praying for others. And when Paul goes out there and he shares the gospel and Gentiles come to Christ, these people will be rewarded because they will have participated in this mission from afar. Okay? So our private life should be characterized by prayer, petition, and intercession. Does that make sense? Speaking to God about other people. That's what prayer is. Okay? Now, our public life. Look what he says here. How should that be lived? Walk. Verse 5. Walk. This is a command. Continually walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Continually walk. And he's talking about our behavior. Our ethical behavior. Walk ethically. Walk upright. He's talking about the way we live. Walk a certain way toward the lost people, those who are outside, being outside the faith. So our daily walk should be such a way that non-believers sit up and take notice. When you walk in wisdom, that means putting these principles that Paul's talked about in chapter 3, for example, forgiving, merciful, thankful, kind, gentle, gracious, when you walk that way, then toward the people who are outside, they will sit up and they will take notice. See? That's what it means in wisdom. It means applying all those principles that he's given us in this letter to our daily lives. Making right decisions. Now, I'll give me an example of this. I'm convinced most Christians don't live that way. <clears throat> For example, a man owns a business. Maybe he has 100 employees. And he's a Christian. You look at that man's business, and you look at another man who has 100 employees, look at his business, they may have, be, may have the same product, may be in the same field, of production, or whatever, and you look at their business, and the business model looks exactly the same. Now we have a downturn in the economy. The non-Christian says, okay, I'm going to have to cut 10%. I have to cut my budget 10%. Straight across the board. So here's what I'm going to do. 100 employees, I'm going to fire, I'm going to lay off 10 employees. 10% of my employees are going to be laid off. That's what a non-Christian would do. That makes sense. But take a Christian man, what should he do? Should he do it that way? Or should he do it differently? Look at the phrase. Walk in wisdom. Any idiot could do that. You don't have to go to Harvard Business School to just cut off 10% of your employees, do you? 
But how about if a Christian businessman who has 100 employees says, look, business is down, it's down throughout all of our industry, we're going to have to cut 10% to make it, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. He could say something like this. Would you be willing, each one, to take 10% cut so that all of our employees continue, continue to work? It means everybody will get 90% of their salary. He could do that. Okay? Or he could say, you know something? Would you be willing to take 5% cut, everybody, all 100 employees, so this business can work, and I'll take 50% cut of that? If he did that, what would happen? What do you think his non-believing employees would think? Wow. This guy's concerned about us. He's more concerned about us than he's concerned. He's cutting 50% of his salary. Or how about if he did like Dr. Criswell did one year? When Dr. Criswell said, you know something? I've got enough money. I'm going to give back all my salary this year. I'm not going to take a salary. Well, did that get national attention? You think the media picked up on that? The unbelieving media picked up on that? You see, we need to live and operate daily in wisdom so that non-believers sit up and take notice. They go, wow. You know, I like that guy. And they see there's a difference between us and others. Now, I'm, that's just a hypothetical, and you know, you can argue with it as far as business sense is concerned. But what I'm saying is we should live differently than other people. Now look what it involves. <clears throat> look what he says. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, that would be lost people, outside the fold, redeeming the time. Uh, that means seizing the moment. Uh, making an opportunity out of a situation that may otherwise be negative. Not missing an opportunity. Doing something wise in the situation. Now, why do you think he's telling them to do that? This is a command, just like the prayer. Why does he tell them to walk in wisdom towards those that are outside, redeeming the time? Why do you think he would say that? One reason, there's two reasons. One reason would be, what? They're not doing it, right? Yeah, you should have picked up on that answer. But the other reason is they are what? They're doing it, and he's telling them to continue doing it. So they start doing it whatever the situation is. Either way, this is what we are to do, and this is what he tells the people at Colossae to do. And when you do this, and you make right decisions, and you live your life in a godly way, the lost people will notice, and it will lead to some questions. Why in the world did Mr. S do that when he didn't have to? And then look what he says in verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace and seasoned with salt. That they, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. It will cause the lost people to stand up and take notice. And they'll say, why is he doing that? And they'll give you an opportunity to answer that. Now look how it says you to answer. Let your speech always be with grace and seasoned with salt. Do you see that? Seasoned with salt was the way Greeks and Romans uh, described speech. 
that was characterized by graciousness and cordiality, but mainly wit and wit, uh, winsomeness. You are to answer people and speak with people with wit and winsomeness. That's what it means to be seasoned with salt. Be winsome when you answer the questions. Be wise when you answer the questions. Use a little wit when you answer the questions. Food without salt is bland. Speech that's not seasoned with salt is bland. You need to add a little bit of zest to your speech. Don't be bland. Well, why do you do it? Well, because I'm a Christian. <laughs> you know, if you have a if you're a sourpuss attitude and a sourpuss face and you sound like a sourpuss, no one's going to listen to that. See? This is how we're to speak to lost people. Our language should be gracious, cordial, wit, winsome when they ask questions about the faith. We should be engaging. We should be involved in friendly conversation with these people so they feel comfortable with us so that when lost people talk to us they see hey you know I really like this guy he's a Christian I'm not a Christian but I really like him and you know I'm asking these questions and he's giving me some answers you can't always be negative why do you well I'm saved by grace I'm just a sinner saved by grace and you can be Save two. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what they want, right? You just cut my pay 10%, and now you're like this? No. I'm convinced that we have this wrong attitude toward our approach to an evangelist. Instead of saying, you're a sinner. <coughs> you can't save yourself. All that kind of stuff. Which is it's true. I'm not saying it's not true. But you have to approach people that way? Can't you just say, you're made in the image of God? God loves you and He created you in His image. And He's concerned more about you than you're concerned for yourself. And that's why He is gracious towards you. And He's been gracious towards me. He wants me to be gracious toward my employees. Boy, that makes Him sit up and take notice. Instead of that negative approach. So, you just can't be a negative person and expect to have positive results. You can't operate your business the way other people operate their business, lost people. Because if you do it that way, your lost employees will not take notice of anything. Because there's no difference between you and, your, and the other businesses in town owned by lost people. And if you're miserable and miserably and miserly, Miserable and miserly. And I think those words go together, by the way. No one's going to sit up and take notice that you're a Christian. All they're going to do is see that you say one thing, but you do something else. See, here what we have is our walk, our, our behavior match our talk. You see that? He tells us to walk in wisdom toward those who are out. That is our behavior, and then he tells us how to speak. See, our behavior and our talk must match. We walk in wisdom, and we talk winsomely. And we share this message of Christ. Notice Paul doesn't say, now I want you to go door to door. 
doesn't do that, does he? How many times does he say go door to door, by the way? How many times does he say buttonhole somebody?